You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. First of all, I want to say thank you to George Hinman for inviting me to come and preach here today on the first Sunday of this new decade. What an honor it is. A joy for me to be here today. And I want to thank each of you and the staff members and members of this church for the wonderful fellowship and friendship of the years that Shirley and I had to be your pastor and pastoral family here in this church. Uh, it's just been, uh, it was, these have been marvelous years in our lives. You have marked our lives for good in a very good way. Since uh, October of uh, 2008, as George mentioned, you know that uh, uh, we've been on, a, on another adventure uh, Earl Palmer Ministries was founded, and I became sort of a minister at large of Earl Palmer Ministries. And uh, then right away, the uh, National Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. asked if I would uh, be on loan from Earl Palmer Ministries to be the uh, preaching pastor in residence in, uh, in Washington, D.C. And that's where I've been for a whole year, and I will continue up until June. Uh, in that post, they're looking for uh, a pastor to be a senior pastor, but I'm serving that church as their preacher mainly each Sunday, except Christmas when I got to come home for Christmas. And it's just been a marvelous experience. What a great church it is. The people are, are just marvelous. The sanctuary, by the way, is very similar to this sanctuary. It looks It's a marble, but it's very similar in, in design, a great pipe organ. And uh, by the way, you know how to make a person feel welcome here at UPC. Uh, Joanne Stremler playing all the Fanny Crosby songs for me today. That, <laughs> That was a gift for me, and uh, we get to sing another one at the end, uh, uh, Blessed Assurance, uh, and we just sang Redeemed, How I Love to Proclaim It, Fanny Crosby. And so that's just been a joy to be here uh, with you today. And once a month, I come back to to, uh, Seattle for Kindling Muse, and that has also been a total joy. In fact, our last Kindling Muse was uh, devoted to Fanny Crosby, American songwriter. And so that's been just fun to be a part of that. Uh, But the big news in our family is that on on December 21st, in Tacoma, Washington, our eighth grandchild was born. And I have to give that report to you. Abraham... Uh, Earl Jacobson. <laughs> I did not name that child. <laughs> and he's the, the cutest little boy in the world. And uh, it, it, we now have uh, four boys and four girls in our, uh, among our grandchildren. And it's just a joy to have that brand new life in our, in our family. I have a text for you today. It's, it's a marvelous text. It's, uh, you heard early, uh, earlier in the service, you heard the opening words from it. And that is Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the first chapter. So if you want to open up to the first chapter, notice Paul in that marvelous uh, opening paragraph. He takes us on a journey. Paul will take us on a journey from the very beginning of everything right up to where we are now today. It's a marvelous journey that Paul sketches in for us in the opening lines of Ephesians. But let's begin with prayer. Lord, uh, be our teacher today in this marvelous text and so that we'll learn from you what your will is for our lives and that we're destined in love. We need that word today at the beginning of this decade. We need it all the time. But now, Lord, bless us as we hear from your word today. In Christ's name, amen. Here's the way it starts. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy, blameless before him in love. He chose us in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good decision, that's the word there, of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he has freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have received redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his love, his grace. You know, it starts with the word blessing in our English text, but this is not the ordinary word for blessing that's used here that would be like in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the the meek. Uh, This is a different word. Actually, the word that's used here is, uh, you know, in Greek, if you put an E-U in front of a word, it means good, and then it's the word E-U, logia, logos. Uh, It almost sounds like the beginning of John's gospel, because John's gospel begins, in the beginning was the word. Calvin translates it, in the beginning was the speech God spoke. God made him, his will known, the word. The word was with God. The word was God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. See, the speech of God created everything. And that's the word word. That's the word that Paul uses here, only he calls it the good word. Because it is the good word. So let me read the text with that literal translation. The good word from God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given the good word to us in Christ in every spiritual good word. He repeats it three times. And uh, that's the way he starts this uh, journey. It, It makes us think of the beginning of the Bible. It makes us think of Genesis. In fact, he goes on to say, since the foundation of everything, the beginning of everything, God has spoken the good word toward us. He has loved us, in other words, from the very beginning. You saw this in Genesis 1. In fact, it reminds us of Genesis 1, because remember, in Genesis 1, the speech of God, the davar, the word of God, is so key. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. In all of the six days of creation, he speaks. It is good at the end of of each day. And the word tov, good, is the beginning of the love vocabulary of the Bible. So that ties into good word. And the best part of the Genesis creation epic account is the creation of man himself. And here's how it is. So God then said, let us make humankind, the RSV translates the word Adam, humankind, but it's literally the word Adam is used here, which becomes the generic word for man, woman. Let us make Adam, man, woman, in our image, according to our likeness. In other words, the imprint of God is put on us. No, nothing else in creation is this set of. It's only set of us. And let them, now the plural is used, have dominion. There's the beginning of the freedom vocabulary of the Bible. And all of this, God is going to call good. He gives us now dominion. Let them have stewardship or freedom over the fish of the airs and the cattle and all of the other the creeping things of the earth. And so God created Adam, humankind, in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Now it's plural again. Male and female, he created them. 
And now we get the great Genesis epic account of our creation. And at the bottom of this sixth day, this is said. And, and it was so. And God saw everything that he made. And indeed, it was all the way along in the six days of creation, it's been said it was good. He called it good. But now he calls it very good. It was very good. And there was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. So God, in the beginning, notice Paul's doing the same thing. In the, from the foundation of everything is the good word of God. God has spoken his good word in creating us and in giving us dominion. And a little later in this dominion text, we get to name all the animals. Don't underrate the importance of that. In the naming of the animals is the birth of science. That's why we as Christians, of all people, should be pro-science. God did it. We get to figure out how he did it. And uh, don't tell anybody not to do the figuring out. We, we rejoice in figuring out how he did it. But he did it. We get to name it. And all the names we choose are the names that God chooses uh, to follow. Like we come up in the book of Job, at the end of Job, God takes the Job on a tour of the whole created order and he's bragging about all the created order because God, you know, made all those things. And when he comes to the sea, he says, now these great big fish, you call them leviathons. I, okay, I'll call them that too. They're big, aren't they? Pretty impressive. And so God is bragging to Job about all the things he made, but he uses Job's language because we were the ones that, that named the hippopotamus. And so God will call the hippopotamus, hippopotamus too. So be careful what you name the uh, creatures, because the funny names are going to stick. And they are through all time. We get to name each other too. We're the ones who name our children. We're the ones who name. And that's the birth of science. And it's a freedom act that we have. And with that freedom, we do wonderful things. With science, we're able to figure out the difference between bacteria and, and, uh, and viruses because we name them. And that's the beginning of our dominion our stewardship of the earth. And God calls it good. That's how, the, that's how Paul starts this great Ephesians journey. Starting out with from the foundation of the world, God made these good word. He gave a good word to everything. But as we well know, within one chapter in the book of Genesis, we come into the troubled garden and we discover that with our dominion, we make wrong choices. We make choices that don't trust the faithfulness of God. We make choices to try to be, Bonhoeffer puts it this way, we were meant to live from the center and we choose to live at the center. And that becomes the beginning of sin and the failure and the harm we do as a result of that so that murder happens within three chapters of Genesis. And uh, we do harm. And people do harm toward us with their dominion choices. And so Paul has to move on in his journey and tell us that not only is God's love for us in originally giving us dominion. He loves us even when with our dominion we make uh, faulty choices and do harm. And that's why uh, he goes on to say, and this good decision of God even extends to the fact that he redeems us. Redeem, that means set free. He sets us free again from the bad choices we make with our freedom. He sets us free and he forgives our trespasses through the blood, the life of his son given in our behalf. So Paul brings that in as well in this opening journey that he takes us on. The good word at the beginning, now the good word in the middle. In the middle of our failure, the good word still stands. We failed, God did not write us off. And that is the whole story of the Old Testament. 
the story of the preparation of the story before the grand story, getting us ready for that moment in history when the good word would speak our salvation. So now when we get to the middle of the Ephesians text, we're thinking of another great speech given in addition to the Genesis speech when God said it was good. And that's the speech given to the night shepherds uh, that we have just celebrated on Christmas night. On Christmas night, some shepherds were keeping watch in their flock. We have just discovered in Luke, the second chapter, that the birth of Christ has taken place in Bethlehem, uh, in a place outside the inn, a stable, because there was no room for the Holy Family in the inn. And then the scene shifts in the eighth verse of chapter 2 of Luke. And in that region, there were shepherds keeping watch over their flocks at night. And suddenly, an angel of the Lord, a messenger of the Lord, appeared to them. They were sore afraid. Actually, the Greek says they were hyper-afraid, hyper-afraid, sore afraid. Uh, Who wouldn't be? And then the angel comforts them. And the angel says, don't be afraid. I bring you good news. Notice, good word. I bring you good word of a good joy for all people everywhere. Not just you, not just Jews, but the whole world. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Notice, Savior. Now we're in the second in the middle of Paul's great journey, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then suddenly, with that one angel, appears the whole whole Robert Shaw Chorale and the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. I mean, you know, God can be rich when he wants to be rich. He can be poor when he wants to be poor. And now he decides to be very rich for these shepherds. And this huge choir sings the first Christmas carol. And they sing this carol. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. That's a salvation word. Peace. Goodwill. Now, that word is eudokia. E-U-dokia. Good decision. That's the good decision of God toward you. By the way, do you know that's the same word Paul uses here? The good decision. He made a good decision when he first created us, and then he made a good decision when he redeemed us. And that's what the first carol sings. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Goodwill, the good decision of God toward all people. But the story is not over. Then the shepherds hear this. And this will be a sign for you. Notice, they get to be a part of a holy sign. This will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. Now, you know what swaddling clothes are? Blankets. That means you're going to see a brand new birth. A baby only wears swaddling clothes for a short time. Then they get their 49er uh, outfit if it's a little boy or their little ballet outfit if it's a little girl. But then they're a toddler. But at the beginning, they're not a toddler. At the beginning, they are kept in swaddling clothes. That means blankets. And that's what the shepherds are told. You're going to see a baby in blankets, not a toddler. A a blanketed baby, a brand new baby. Charles Malick, the great philosopher, said that the only new thing in the world is Jesus Christ. Everything else is as old as the hills. Only that which is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the eternal, is truly new. He's the new thing. And the shepherds are invited to see the new thing that's happened. That God has now spoken for himself in history. He has spoken before, but he has not spoken in flesh. And now the word became flesh, full of grace and truth. And they got to see it. 
You know, I've always thought of the humor of, of Christmas, that the shepherds with their 12, 13 sheep, that's probably all they had, maybe 14, uh, they get to go into Bethlehem with the sheep. They can't leave them in the hills for the wolves to get. So they're going to go into to Bethlehem to see the baby. And aren't you glad that there was no room for the family in the, whole, in the inn? Can you imagine the shepherds with their sheep going to room 302 and <laughs> going up the elevator and stuff like that to see the baby in, the, in, the proper, in a proper room? No, the baby was born in a stable. And in the wisdom of God, he knew he wanted witnesses. Only two sets of witnesses are chosen, you know. Not Herod, not the Pharisees, some strange wise men from a foreign country that we meet in Matthew 2, and the shepherds that, that come in the night. And they're the witnesses. And then on the eighth day of our Lord's life, when he was circumcised, a man named Simeon in the temple saw him and bore witness. And a woman, Anna, the first prophet, saw him and prophesied that he was the Messiah. So there are the witnesses. And Mary and Joseph, the holy family, got to hear these witnesses say what they'd heard, that carol. Mary pondered those in her heart. That they had, The shepherds heard the carol. They get to share it with the holy family. They get to go and see for themselves. That's what the angel says. Go and see for yourself this destiny, this destiny that you have, uh, this adoption that you have, this good news of redemption, of forgiveness, of wholeness that is for you, you get to go and see it for yourself. I'm intrigued by this, this marvelous juxtaposition of the creation account when he talks about the good word from the foundation and the good word in redemption when he redeemed us, when he forgave us, when he healed us. These two are put together by Paul. And that's our destiny. That is what he calls our destiny. Our destiny is to discover this belovedness. That's why I titled today's sermon, Destined in Love. He destined us to discover this will of God for our lives. I've been thinking about this. How do we, in the 21st century, in the beginning of this decade, how do we make that discovery today? What about you? What about me? How do we make that discovery? Well, first of all, one thing we know is that God is not going to break his rules, his own rules of his original decision, and take away our freedom. He's not going to, and that will rule out mandatory, forcible discovery. The shepherds are not forced to go to Jerusalem, or to go to Bethlehem. They're invited to go to Bethlehem. They're not compelled to discover God's good decision in their behalf, nor were the wise men. They chose to come to look for this child. He invites us to see for ourselves. And that happened in the, in the first century. It, happened also, it happens in our century at the beginning of this decade. We're invited to see for ourselves. He doesn't force us. He invites us. I was trying to think of an analogy for this. And an analogy came to my mind. Uh, God is like a great rancher. In fact, at one point in the Bible, he's, he's described as the, as the Lord of a cattle on a thousand hills. That's the way God is described. He's like this great rancher that has cattle on a thousand hills. And though there is an outer boundary, since he owns the whole, all the hills, he owns them all. And all the land he owns. So there is that boundary, for sure. But there are no close-in fences that force us together to go where he wants us to go. 
and where he wants us to arrive at discovery of our destiny. Discovering his love, discovering truth, discovering righteousness. There are no inner fences that compel us like barbed wire and close in on us and force us to be good. Sometimes we wish they were, but there aren't. So then how does God bring us to our destiny? How does he bring us to the place where we discover his grace in our lives? And then a friend helped me with with my analogy. I said, you know, it's like this rancher that has this huge cattle ranch, but he doesn't have any fences around it. And a friend of mine said, well, you know, in the Australian outback, there are some ranches in the outback of, of Australia that are so big that they don't have fences. They don't fence them. Well, then how do they bring the cattle together? And this friend said, I tell you how they do it. They do it with wells. They do it with water sources. And that's how the cattle are brought together. And salt licks and food, they bring them together that way. They don't have uh, ever-tightening barbed wire fences. They may use a little Australian sheepdog to help the stray sheep every now and then. But they, they don't have these steel fences that tighten in and, and make it mandatory and obligatory that they discover God's love. They have wells. And the wells draw them. That hit me. I said, yes, that's exactly the way it is in the New Testament. In the Feast of Tabernacles, where our Lord went to Jerusalem, which is a seven-day feast to celebrate the 40 years in the wilderness when God provided for the children of Israel during their 40 years of their nomadic existence. And that's what Feast of Tabernacles is all about. And one of the parts of the feast is where they pour water through a silver funnel onto the ground to, to represent the fact that God gave water to them during the 40 years in the wilderness. And on the last day of the feast, the seventh day, our Lord says to the people, if you're still thirsty, come to me, all you that thirst, and out of you will flow rivers of water. He invites them on the last day of the feast. They've been celebrating water. But he says, are you still thirsty? Then come to me and you'll find water. In the 11th chapter of Matthew, almost a similar statement is made. Our Lord says to a group of people, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. What's he mean by that? I've got to thinking about the fact that our Lord was a carpenter all the way until he was 32 years old. What kind of carpentry did Jesus do? Do you ever stop and think about that? I've seen a lot of silly pictures of Jesus baking cabinets. Uh, no, that's the Amish that made cabinets. He, he didn't make cabinets. What kind of carpentry did Jesus do with his father? He made yokes. Yokes. That was, a, that, was a, that was the highest art of carpentry, would be to make a yoke that two animals could work together and not hurt each other. They had to fit perfectly. They had to be perfectly fit, fit to the person. And that's carpentry. Jesus knew how to make yokes, and I think that's why he does this little parable. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. Take my yoke. I know how to make yokes that fit. Trust me, I can fit a yoke to you. I can help you find who you are. Wow. Notice what he's doing. He's not forcing us to come. He says, come if you're, if, if you're weary and heavy laden. George Frederick Handel put that in as one of the most beautiful of all the chorales in Messiah. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. In the book of Revelation, the Holy Spirit says to the, to the Laodicean church, by the way, the worst of the churches, says, 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. That's the promise given to the worst church, not the best church. So in a way, our Lord offers water to us. He offers food to us. He offers a yoke that fits. And that's how we're drawn, not by barbed wire. We're not forced to discover his love. We're not forced to discover his will for our lives. Our freedom is not tampered with. In fact, Martin Luther made an interesting comment. He said that those who are converted because of fear or compulsion will later hate their conversion. But if you're converted because you discovered grace and God's love and his truth, you will later rejoice in your conversion. You know, in the book of Job, you heard a text read by Tim just a few moments ago, which is, comes in the 14th chapter of Job. And I chose it as my Old Testament text because it's a very sad text in a way because the 14th chapter, Job is very, very down. He is suffering. In fact, he begins the 14th chapter by saying, I want to argue with God. I want to make my case with God. Oh, that I knew where I might find him so that I could argue with him. And then he argues with God. His friends tell him he has no right to do this, but he still does it. And he says, I want to argue with you. It doesn't seem fair. My life is falling apart completely. I am completely down. I feel like I'm dying. I feel like there's no hope for me at all. And then a thought occurs to him in the middle of his, of his lament. He says, yes, I am so down. And yet even a tree that gets chopped down, when water is around, that tree still is able to put out shoots. And even a dead stump will put out shoots. And here was the line that hit me. At the scent of water. Did you think that water had a smell? It does have a smell. If you're walking in the woods and you go by a waterfall, there is a scent of water. It does smell. Very good, too. And Job saw that. And that one little moment of hope is in the middle of that grim lament. He said, even a dead stump, or apparently dead stump, will put out a shoot at the scent of water. Well, as you know, some of you know, I, I write poems that drop the hat. And so a few, a few weeks ago, I wrote a poem about that from that Job text. Because I was thinking about this mixture of God's providing for our freedom and yet calling us to discover his love. And here's my poem. I called it A Scent of Water. God must be sure of himself because where I live, there are few fences to surround and gather in people like me. And so we choose our own way to go, following ideas in our own heads. But where the way arrives, we're not sure. And when the air dries out, water that tastes good is not easy to find. Just in time, the scent of an early rain and its stream invites all who are thirsty to come and drink and to stay a while. When I look back, I'm sure the water is what made the difference. And it was not a moment too soon for me. God must be very sure of himself and the scent of water. That's the gospel. 
this beginning of a new decade, we need water. We need hope. We need God's love more than anything else. It needs to come together and just click. We get to find it for ourselves. The shepherds are invited. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. We get to find it. The word became flesh. The good word became flesh, dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Now we can find it. And then we discover our destiny. I want to thank Joanne for playing all the Fanny Crosby songs. But, you know, the best Fanny Crosby song is now coming next. (laughs) Let me tell you about this song. Fanny Crosby had a lot of friends. You know, she was blind. And uh, did you notice in Redeemed How I Loved to Proclaim It, the last line of Redeemed How I Loved to Proclaim It says, I know I shall see in his beauty the king in whose light I delight, who loveth, lovingly guardeth my footsteps and giveth me songs in the night. Uh, she has many of her songs that she will see the king. And she'll know who he is because I'll know by the nail scars in his hands. When I feel his hands, I'll know who he is. So she has these wonderful songs. But one of her best songs, and probably the greatest all Fanny Crosby songs, was suddenly written. Her fen, uh, friend Phoebe Palmer, Knapp, was one of her friends. And she was a, a very interesting lady who took a great interest in Fanny Crosby, who was blind, and wrote poems. But uh, Phoebe Knapp wrote songs. And she loved to write melodies. And she would invite Fanny Crosby up to her house, and she was at her house one day, and she said to Fanny Crosby, I've got a melody here. I love this melody. Do you think you could write words to it? And so she sang the melody. And you know, Fanny Crosby said, I know, I know the words for that right now. And she wrote the words in five minutes. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of love. It clicked. It was right. It was just right. It was the scent of water at the right moment. Heavenly Father, thank you for this scent of water. And thank you that it's just right. It comes at the right moment in our lives. May this be the right moment in all of our lives here today. As we begin this new decade, may we begin it with the scent of water. May we begin it knowing of your love and experiencing it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.